Will you join me in prayer um, as we begin? Dear Heavenly Father, we want to pray for um, the good and the sad and the difficult, the challenging this week. We want to thank you that um, Eleanor was able to celebrate her first birthday, um, that you've carried her and Sam Michael through that first difficult year, Lord. And we want to thank you that Josephine was born on Monday. We want to thank you that you've been with Mike and Bernie through their journey um, and that you'll continue to be with them and bless them as they um, experience the joys and the challenges of parenting a newborn. And we ask that you keep Josephine healthy and happy. We want to pray, Lord, for um, Andy's family as they continue to grieve um, the loss of Andy's dad, um, that the days and weeks and months to come um, as they miss him, that you will draw near and comfort them. And Father, we want to pray for Ruth, Lord. Um, we had the sad news this week that Ruth's mother passed away very unexpectedly in Kenya. And we want to pray that you would draw very near to Ruth and her whole family as they grieve and as they um, look back at the life and legacy that she has left behind. May they find comfort in knowing that they will see her again. Um, and that, Father God, there is a day coming when you will bring all our loved ones um, back, that we can have that great reunion. We want to pray that you be with Ruth as she's still experiencing a lot of chronic pain, that, um, you know, with this added sorrow and stress that um, she won't relapse, but that she'll be able to find relief in her pain um, to be able to um, hopefully get, have the strength and the comfort needed to get through this very difficult time. Father, we want to pray for Anastasia's uh, brother, John, who is battling cancer, that you would watch over him and um, may he be able to come here to Australia to get some treatments. Father, I know there are other members um, and, and family members of our members and loved ones who may be sick, who may be um, ill or, or in pain or having surgeries. Or um, Father, you know what they're going through. We just want to pray that you be very near to them. Give them strength as they support their loved ones um, and as they go through um, medical conditions, um, however mild or significant, that they would uh, be able to rely on you and trust in you, that through it all, that um, they know that they can uh, lean on you for, for strength and comfort. Father, I want to pray that as this year draws to a close, um, many of us are very exhausted from the roller coaster ride that's been 2021, and Father, we pray that um, as we go towards the end of this year, as, as things open up and things get busy, and, and um, sometimes the Christmas festivities get in the way of us being able to really focus on what your birth really meant and what you mean to us now, I pray that you would help us declutter from the stress of the year and really focus on who you want us to be, who you have called us to be and what you want us to be in the new year. And so as I share this message today about your teachings, may your Holy Spirit um, be with my mouth and my heart and, and all of us as we listen, Lord. May we listen to your spirit. We pray in your son's name. Amen. This year we've been going through several um, series. We did the Pioneers of Faith series, looking at uh, individuals in history whose faith in God inspire them and whose faithfulness then inspired us. Remember the stories of Katharina von Bora, the wife of Martin Luther, the reformer, John and Julia Corliss, um, the first some of the Adventist missionaries to Melbourne, Australia. 
Joseph and Julia Steed, um, Frank and Margaret Bottrell, who had built that big Lizzie machine that you can still go visit, um, Neville Westwood with their car Bubsy, that was the first car to kind of go around um, Australia. So we looked at that series of pioneers of faith. It feels like a long time ago now, doesn't it? But that was the beginning of this year. Then we did a series on six different ways to share your faith that Roy did, followed by a three-part series on suffering. Do you want to be made whole? We explore the question of why is there so much suffering? What is God doing about it? And what can we do to participate and contribute to the healing? Then we did a series on songs in the night. Um, I really enjoyed that series, looking at songs and stories of songs um, that inspire us when we are going through hard times um, to give us hope and endurance. Then we did a series on truths to live by, important big picture thoughts to guide us as we navigate life. And most recently, we completed a series, um, Is Christianity Good?, as well as Roy's series on loving our neighbors. And I want to end this year by um, having another series, finishing the, the series on the teachings of Jesus. Specifically, what Jesus taught during his most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, recorded by his disciple uh, Matthew in the Gospel of Matthew chapters 5 to 7. Now, the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount is actually quite a significant sermon, not only because it's, it's the longest kind of sermon that we have recorded from Jesus in the Gospels, but it's been a significant sermon in, in secular history and um, just in world history as well. For example, Mohandas Gandhi, who in the 1800s, um, he, when he was 18 years old, he traveled to London and someone gave him a Bible and he read the Bible. And in 1887, you know, he was reading the Sermon on the Mount and it really profoundly affected him. Um, and as he said in his autobiography, he said, the sermon went straight to my heart. And it's, it's kind of uh, been the foundation or the basis for his establishment of India's freedom through a nonviolent revolution. Also, in the 1900s, Martin Luther King Jr., the American civil rights leader, made the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount the basis of his commitment to nonviolent civil disobedience. In 1960, King said that he was driven back to the Sermon on the Mount and the Gandhi method of nonviolent resistance, and that this principle became the guiding light of the civil rights movement that he led. The actual sermon that Jesus preached was probably a lot longer than what we have recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Usually Jesus preached for hours. Um, and so what Matthew probably wrote down for us are the highlights. So some direct quotations as well as some kind of paraphrased summaries of the points. But the context of the Sermon on the Mount um, it is that Jesus has been traveling um, and, and preaching and teaching and healing for about a year now. And usually he, he went to towns and he, he um, you know, told people not to always go around telling everybody. Um, and he was not always open uh, to preaching to a large crowd. But here we have Jesus on this mountain um, in front of a large crowd of probably hundreds of thousands of people well, I shouldn't say that, hundreds of thousands, thousands, so hundreds of people, um, that have gathered together to hear what he has to say. And when we look at Matthew chapter 5, it tells us who the audience was. And it says um, that 
in Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 that this there was a crowd that came but also his disciples were there and he began to teach them. So there are two groups who are listening to Jesus at this time, the crowd and the disciples. Now who were they? In order to answer this question and in order to help us understand uh, the Sermon on the Mount, we have to go back a little bit to Matthew chapter 4. And this is what it says. Here's what we first find out about the crowd. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 to 25, it says that Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. And so we find out that this crowd that has gathered now to hear his teachings, amongst this crowd are people who had been mourning, who had been suffering, who had been oppressed, who were longing for freedom, and that Jesus had healed them. Also in this crowd were, were the, the, the family members, the neighbors, the friends of these uh, sick and oppressed individuals. And so they had witnessed the miracles that Jesus had performed. They had witnessed his power and his compassion. And they were now amongst this crowd that wanted to hear, what does Jesus have to say? Also in this crowd were, were those who might not have witnessed Jesus' miracles directly, but who heard about what Jesus had done. And they had now gathered here curious about what Jesus had to say. Now keep that in mind as, as we look at what Jesus then actually teaches. Because when we go back, well now we go forward I should say, to Matthew chapter 5, and it says 1 and 2 on top, but uh, it, it goes all the way to verse 12 here. And this is um, the beginning of the Sermon of the Mount, and it starts with this thing called the Beatitudes, which is the Latin for um, each word that begins with blessed in the Greek actually means happy, um, and it was translated as beatitus in, in um, Latin. And so Jesus begins and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Uh, for in the same way, sorry, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And see, so when you read this, right, these statements were, would have been just as shocking then as it is to us now. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, happy are those who mourn, rejoice when people insult you. How can this be? How can, how can those who are poor in spirit be blessed? Wouldn't God bless those who are spiritually thriving, the spiritually fruitful, the spiritually multiplying? And how can those who mourn be happy? 
How can anyone rejoice when they're being treated unjustly? It doesn't make any sense. But when we keep in context who's listening here, right? There's the crowd of people who have actually experienced this already. Those who had mourned, those who had suffered, who have experienced the healing and the kingdom of heaven now. At the moment they experienced that transformation from Jesus, that kingdom of heaven had begun already in their hearts. And then there was that other group. Remember I said there was the crowd, but there were also the disciples who were listening. And who were these disciples? When you go back further in Matthew chapter 4, we find out a bit about who some of them were. It says in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. You see, James and John, Peter and Andrew, they they were these fishermen who had um, been actually with Jesus for about a year now already. They had first heard about him because they were following John the Baptist, who had um, preached in the wilderness saying that the kingdom of heaven is near. And then he had pointed to Jesus and said, that's the Messiah. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so James and John, Peter and and, um, Andrew had, had followed this Jesus because they respected and believed in John the Baptist. But a year into their journey, they had witnessed some miracles. They had witnessed Jesus' healing of of the people. They had had heard some of Jesus' teaching. But now about a year has gone by. And they're kind of at a, a crisis in their journey with Jesus. Because their respected teacher, the one who had brought them to Jesus, John the Baptist, had been thrown into prison by Herod, who was kind of like the sub-king of Galilee um, under the Roman Empire. And John the Baptist was in prison and they were worried about him, but Jesus doesn't seem to make any indication that he's going to go visit him. And so while they're, you know, in their, in their hearts and in their heads, they're thinking, okay, well, we've been following him, we know that Jesus is special, but Jesus is not doing anything to rescue John, nor is he doing anything so far to to try to become the king instead of Herod. The Messiah was prophesied to be the king, and and Jesus is not doing anything kingly so far. So far, this 30-year-old carpenter from Nazareth, the wrong end of, of, of Galilee, hadn't done anything to challenge the Roman Empire. In fact, they had just witnessed Jesus being rejected in his own hometown. He had been thrown out of the synagogue, and the people there had tried to throw him over a cliff. It was a narrow escape. And the disciples, especially Simon Peter, start wondering, why doesn't Jesus do things differently? Right? They're feeling frustrated. Why doesn't he rescue John the Baptist? Why doesn't he try to get the religious leaders on his side? Why does he speak in parables? Right? They're feeling frustrated as, as Jesus is um, is sharing and teaching things that are, frankly speaking, difficult for them to understand. Um, sorry, I'm just getting messages that the media team is saying that the, the camera mic is not working very well. 
Um, hey, Roy. Alright, well, hopefully you can all hear. Alright. Um, I hope I hope it's still working. Alright, I'm just going to keep going. And so, these four fishermen, right, feeling distressed at this point of their journey, they decide to go um, fishing. They want to clear their heads. This is what they know. This is what they're good at. So they go fishing. But all night long, they catch nothing. Not a single fish to show for their long night. Not only is the direction of their lives uncertain and unclear with Jesus as their master, but now their fallback occupation isn't working out either. I don't know if you've ever felt like this. After a long night of hard work, feeling like it, it didn't amount to anything. It's morning and so they give up and they bring their boats back to shore and they start washing the nets, thoroughly discouraged and exhausted. And as they're washing their nets, can you imagine every tangle of seaweed, every broken shell caught in there as they're, as they're fish taking it out and cleaning the nets makes them just that much, a little more extra bitter, that much more extra tired. And it's at this point that Jesus shows up on shore and asks Simon Peter if he can use his boat as a pulpit to preach from. And he asks Peter to put out a little bit from shore. And Simon does this. And uh, he's, you know, listening to Jesus for a little bit. But Simon is not really paying attention. His, his thoughts and his doubts are still swirling through his head. <clears throat> and Jesus finishes speaking and then all of a sudden, he turns to Simon and he says, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And this is um, Luke chapter 5, which, which gives us a bit more of a detailed version of what happened in, in Matthew chapter 4. And so then, you can imagine Peter is a bit startled here, you know. He's already exhausted. He's, I'm sure he's very hungry, um, he, you know, and, and I don't know about you, but when I'm tired and hungry, you, you get that hangry um, not not very feeling compliant to do things that people want you to do. And also remember, Jesus is a carpenter, Peter is a fisherman, and here's this carpenter telling the fisherman, hey, I know you worked all night and didn't catch anything, but go back out, go back out and, and launch um, the nets back down. The nets that you just cleaned up, by the way. So Simon, you can tell, is a bit annoyed by this command, um, and, and so he says to Jesus, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. And I wonder at this point, if Simon paused and looked at Jesus' face, and he sees Jesus looking at him, not with condemnation, but with love, and he looks at him, not, not, not with an annoyed, frustrated, or disappointed face, but a face that, it's, that seems to say, just trust me. Just, just do this. And so then Peter quickly adds, all right, because you say so, I will let down the nets for a catch. And the Bible goes on to say in Luke chapter 5, when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, Get away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. 
for he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they, so they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why did Simon Peter fall at Jesus' knees? In the original Greek, it says that he prostrated, that Peter was face down on the ground because he realized that Jesus could read his heart and he could see all those doubts, all those angry, bitter thoughts that Peter had. Jesus knew how spiritually poor Simon Peter really was. And yet, here he was, Lord of all creation, master of the fish in the sea, providing for, providing for Simon Peter, right? And, and calling him to be in his inner circle, to be a disciple maker, to be a leader. When you look at what, what Peter says, you know, earlier in verse 5, Simon had called him master, a Greek word, you know, that means, you know, commander, master. But here in verse 8, Simon uses a different Greek word, and this word is kyrie, which is the word for that the Jews reserve for the Lord God. You see, at this point, Simon realizes, Lord, Jesus, you're not just the, my master, you're not just someone that I follow, you are the Lord God, the creator of the world, the sustainer of all things. The great I am is before him, and so then Peter falls on him in his face and realizes, get away from me, I'm sinful, I'm unworthy. But at the same time, he clings to his feet. He, it says that he, he grabs him by the knees and he's clinging to him saying, but I actually, right, he, he says, depart from me. But his body language is saying, but Jesus, don't leave me because I need you, because I'm spiritually poor, because I'm spiritually broken, because I'm sinful. I need the Lord God. I need you to save me. Peter's reaction is what we often see in the Bible as man's reaction to face-to-face confrontation with God. When the prophet Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, he declared, Woe is me, for I am undone. Just making sure the cable, I don't know why it's not working. Job had the same experience. He said, after he was you know, complaining to God about his, his circumstance, his suffering, the loss, and then finally, when God speaks to him, you know, um, and, and he hears God speaking to him, he says, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. God appears to Job. And he says, now I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And John writes when he experiences that kind of same theophany of seeing God face to face. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Because when you are spiritually poor and you realize your own inadequacies before this divine, supreme, and sovereign God, on the one hand, you just think, there's no way I can live through this. There's no way I can come face to face with God. But on the other hand, we think we need that God so desperately. And so to this spiritually poor fisherman, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of your future. I will provide, Jesus says. Don't be afraid of other people and the persecution. I will teach you how to make disciples. Don't be afraid of how spiritually poor you are because I forgive you and I will provide you salvation. 
just come and follow me. So when we go back to the Beatitudes now, keep Simon Peter in mind, right? And Andrew and James and John. Keep John the Baptist in prison in that Roman dungeon in mind. Keep those crowds, some of whom have been healed and freed from their diseases and suffering, in your mind as you listen once again to this declaration by Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the Hebrew literary style, there's a style called chiastic structure. And in this structure, the passage folds in the middle and mirrors each other. And the middle is the most important. And so when Jesus structured the Beatitudes, the climax is that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be filled. And those who are merciful will obtain mercy. You see, only those who are hungry seek to be filled. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they did not feel the need for Jesus because they felt like they were already good people. They already felt that they knew enough to get into the kingdom of heaven. They felt they already did enough good works and had the right connections, were born into the right towns and families. And so when Jesus came along preaching that the kingdom of heaven belonged to children, to the poor, the blind, the lame, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the uneducated, and those willing to be born again, the religious leaders rejected him and his teachings. But those who were vulnerable, those who were ostracized, those who felt that they were sinful, those who knew that they could not change on their own, they hungered for Jesus. They hungered for what he had to give them. And so they walked for hours to get to this mountainside, to follow him. They left everything to listen to what he had to say. And Jesus said to them, and to us who are spiritually poor, he says, I have good news for you. The good news that blessed are you because yours is the kingdom. Not will be, not may be, but is. Because when you hunger for righteousness and you're thirsty for justice and you long for freedom from sin and from this world that has so much injustice, that's when we feel that need and seek after God and his kingdom, that Jesus fills the gap. That where we're spiritually poor, he is rich and he provides his grace so that it's not our works, but his works that get us into that kingdom of heaven. He comforts us in our loss, in our suffering, so that in this world that is full of pain, and he uses us to bring about a better world. And that's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus not only preaches but fulfills that hunger, that thirst, and makes us have that relationship with him that begins the kingdom of heaven here and now. So that it's not just about the life to come, but it's about our lives here, being in that relationship with Jesus, 
having that transformation from inside out. And the question is, do we accept that good news? When Jesus is finished preaching on the mountain, you know, are we part of the crowd that is, that is going to go back home? Or are we going to be part of the crowd that decide to become disciples, to join Jesus wherever he goes? If you're not sure yet where you are in that journey, you're in good company because Jesus still has more to say. That The sermon is not over. Mine is, but his is not. The Sermon on the Mount has just begun and we have just begun to explore it. The Beatitudes is just the introduction to the idea that the pursuit of holiness is much more satisfying than the pursuit of happiness. The desire for God satisfies more than the desire for goods. And the hunger to know Jesus fills our hearts far better than the hunger to be known in the world. In the coming weeks, we're going to explore more of this upside kingdom of Jesus, upside down kingdom of Jesus, I should say. And I hope you can read Matthews chapter 5 to 7 in the, in the weeks to come. And I'm going to look at it together to look at what is it about Jesus and his teachings that has turned this world upside down, that has begun this movement that I shared before that has grown into the billions. What is it about Jesus' teaching that inspired Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. that inspires us today to love our enemies, to reach out for God in a world that says that God is dead? And I pray that as we go through these teachings and as we look at what Jesus taught, look at who Jesus was, that we will be inspired to become his disciples. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to pray that as we go and journey through the Sermon on the Mount, that you'll give us this hunger for righteousness, that you'll give us this thirst for your kingdom, that you'll make us spiritually poor so that we would recognize our true condition and desire a relationship with you. And Father, I want to pray that as we journey uh, through the Sermon on the Mount, we'll journey from becoming just part of the curious crowd to becoming your disciples. I want to pray for anyone who might be kind of on that fence today of wanting to learn more, that you would open up to them through your Holy Spirit, your words, and that they would make that decision to really seek first the kingdom of God and, and your righteousness. So I pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.